This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Your Money on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Your Money, SiriusXM, Channel 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Kent Smethers, a professor at the Wharton campus in Philadelphia, and we're still taping segments on Zoom until we can begin safely doing live shows from the studio itself. In the meantime, you know, you can connect with me on my website, kentonmoney.com, and if you're looking for a financial advisor that I like, remember, we only want fee-only. That's what you should always memorize, only fee-only. I have a list of screen, and they're uh, as well as for the, uh, my approach to low-cost passive index investing. Again, that's on my website, kentamoney.com. So you've never known by looking at the stock market that a record number of Americans are, of course, out of work, you know, struggling due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. You know, stocks continue to hit new highs despite some volatility. And so to under- help us understand why this is happening, we're going to uh, maybe – are you in a position to make some changes to your portfolio? I brought back one of our favorite guests, Ara Gorian. He is the founder and president of ACAP Advisors and Accountants, um, which he does only fee-only planning. And uh, welcome back to the show, uh, Ara. Hey, thank you. Great, great to be back, Kent. Yeah. And so certainly listeners have been hearing that the stock market is overvalued. You know, I, I try to explain it that the stock market is forward looking it's not just about here and today but you know explain that in your view you know what people mean by that maybe clients or others mean by that and whether you agree or disagree sure so i i completely agree with you that the stock market is forward looking there's a consensus that the stock market's like six months out look looks at about six months out into the future as far as earnings are concerned but we get this question a lot, especially from new clients that may have been sitting on cash for a long time. And yeah. they're wondering, should they invest now? Because it seems like the market has been, in, been hitting new highs lately. And the, 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 the response we've always told them is pretty consistent that if your time horizon, and we look at five years or more, if your time horizon's at least five years or more, then it's prudent for you to, to invest in the stock market, a portion of it based on your risk tolerance, because in the near term, we just don't know what the markets are going to do, and we're not trying to predict it. But over the long term, five years or more, it's enough to for your portfolio to withstand some sort of cycle or volatility. Mm. And so, let's talk about the stocks themselves. You know, what's driving them higher? I mean, certainly, when we think about the stock market, we often think about the large cap S and P five hundred. That's you know almost seventy five percent, sometimes more, of all listed. Uh, stock in um, the, the United States. And then even within that, you know, you have five companies that compose 20% of the S&P 500. Um, but of course, you know, when we think about the market, it is forward looking. It's, you know, looking, uh, doing a present value discount that future cash flows. So it's both a numerator and where, you know, earnings will be, as well as the denominator, what the discount rate um, that uh, the marketplace is using. So in your mind, kind of what is uh, primary drivers right now of, this, of uh, the stock market? So, yeah, I mean, you really hit the nail right on the head, Kent. It's really two things. If you do a 
performance attribution of whether it's the NASDAQ or the S&P or any major index, I guess right now it's primarily the NASDAQ and the S&P, you'll see that it is only a handful of companies that are driving that those indexes up. And the reason why that's happening is because the way those indexes are calculated. They're what's called uh, market weighted. So the company that has the highest market value has the greatest weight on that index. So as those individual companies rise in value, they become much larger and larger percentage of that index. So that's that's been the primary driver of it. The other part of that equation is that because of the pandemic, you've seen, and this has been recorded on many different publications, we've seen a record number of people open up brokerage accounts, whether it's at, uh, well, I won't name the brokerage accounts, but all the different brokerage account platforms. Yeah. And there's a suspicion that there's a lot of people doing day trading and maybe having a herd mentality where they're pushing up these prices mm. or just you know doing a lot of day trading on their own. Yeah, it's and certainly with the low interest rates too, it, you know, it, the, the market is always doing that that comparison between you know stocks versus bonds when you actually have bonds being highly valued with you know low interest rates that present value of those future earnings for companies of course increases so you know you have a new client and they're thinking about going to the market certainly you know you and I don't believe in like kind of market timing but we certainly agree with you know, matching investments to goals and we try to, you know, get people are maybe a little nervous and, and they've been nervous for a long time, of course. Uh, people have been talking about the market being overvalued since the Dow was at, you know, 12,000. So how, how do you approach that, that, that client who's maybe, uh, maybe has the right goals for, you know, getting into the marketplace, um, but they're, you know, a little skittish at this point? So, and you know, that's actually a great example because we have someone right now who we're onboarding as a new client who's in that exact same situation. But I just want to circle back to a comment you made earlier and I'll, yeah. and I'll answer your question. Uh, I completely agree with you. I think because of the way that interest rates are and the discount rate, it's essentially forcing people to take risk. The U.S., believe it or not, is really the only country in the developed world that has a relatively positive real rate of return. If yeah. you look at most of Western Europe, they're at a negative rate of return or negative interest rates, which is you know bad. And some people think that's going to happen in the U.S. I hope not. But um, that that the structure, the real rates, really causing people to take more risk than they maybe want to or should, just to get more yeah. yield. Um, but to answer your question, the way we really structure a portfolio, especially for a new client who um, is just getting onboarded and they're nervous about the market, we again look at that five-year horizon. So we want to make sure that whatever allocated they have is going to be towards five years. And we work a little bit backwards. So for example, I'm just going to use arbitrary numbers. Let's say a person has a million dollars they're, they're thinking about investing. And of that million, they need $100,000 for emergency cash reserve. So we subtract that part out. So now that leaves 900,000. And let's assume that uh, of that 900,000, they need 200,000 for living expenses for the next two years. We'll subtract that out as well. That leads to 700,000. And if there are no other, if no other part of that 700,000 is earmarked, meaning for renovation or anything like that, then right. we know that that 700,000 can be now invested long-term, again, five years or more. 
how that 700,000 is invested goes back to when we do the financial plan and determine a person's risk tolerance and how much should be in equities and how much should be in bonds and how much should be in cash. Yeah, and certainly risk tolerance, you know, I've been always a little a bit of a skeptic of that. You know, I, I, I certainly think if someone ultimately doesn't want to take on risk, they should not, of course. And ultimately, the advisor has to respect that. that. That becomes a hard cap. At the same time, sometimes, you know, people will say, hey, we're going to swing for the fences, willing to take on a lot of risk. Yet we kind of know, you know, all these studies that show, you know, the bias associated with that. For example, males are more likely to argue that they are willing to swing for the fences, but then after it's a loss, you know, they're more <laughs> likely to readjust their their risk tolerance, whereas females tend to be the more stable of the uh, the two genders in terms of their say, risk tolerance. And, you know, lots of studies have, you know, uh, talked about this. How do you think about then the risk role risk capacity? If someone's willing to swing for the fences, does that mean you have them swing for the fences? So it's because, you know, you say you think they're ready to do it, or do you say, hey, you know what? Yes, you know, never take on more risk than you're comfortable with. And part of that's the education process, but also hard cap. I mean, we also want to think about the capacity to take on risk. Right, you're absolutely right, Kent. And I, and I chuckled a little bit because uh, I feel that an individual's risk tolerance is correlated with the market. So as a market goes yeah. up, they tend to have higher risk tolerance. And then they say they want more risk. And then when the market goes down, they kind of recoil and say, no, I didn't want that much risk. So it's, it's hard to find that happy medium. Yeah. But the way we look at risk, I, I view risk tolerance as, as a uh, uh, two components. One is a person's ability to take risk. And yeah. one is their person's willingness to take risk. And you're right that someone may be young and they might have the ability to take risk because they've got a long time horizon, but their willingness to take risk is not as great. So as a result, we have to adjust the portfolio downwards because their willingness is always going to trump a person's ability to take risk. Right, right. And when we do that, we have yet to meet a couple that have the same risk tolerance. Right. So we come across this often where one of the spouses will be swing for the fences that you mentioned, and the other spouse would be, I just want to protect and preserve my capital. So we really try to find a happy medium between the two. And then that changes over time. So we want to make sure every year the portfolio is commensurate with both their willingness and their ability to take risk. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, in my mind, you know, both are kind of, it's almost like a min function. You you just can't take on more risk than either their, you know, tolerance or their capacity um, uh, to do it. So certainly there's been a lot of talk about recession-proofing one's investments. And certainly the S&P 500 has, of course, stocks already. Walmart does better during recessions. Uh, versus people who are selling, you know, more normal goods that typically are more pro-cyclical. In fact, economists actually have uh, terminology for this, sellers of inferior versus normal goods. And it, it sounds pejorative, but it's more of a technical discussion about the income elasticity of sellers, you know, uh, goods and services, is a positive or negative. And the idea of recession-proofing, of course, is this idea of maybe you stack in your portfolio with some inferior um, sellers are selling fewer goods that they, that is they do a little bit better as income goes down um, uh, rather and it's called inferior because you know think about 
when you graduated college, you, as your income went up, your demand for certain goods actually went down, like spam and ramen noodles. <laughs> and yet, you know, during recession, spam and ramen noodles do pretty good, you know? Um, so I think it, 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 certainly there's a lot of talk now about recession proofing. What are your thoughts about it? Do you, do you like putting in tilts for recession proofing, or do you think that's already part of the market cap weighted index? Well, it's a little bit part of the market cap weighted index because if we were to tilt the portfolio in such a manner, then we kind of start delving into the market timing component, and that's yeah, exactly. not really what we want to do. Yeah. Um, but we do try to recognize when a certain asset class sector may be overvalued or undervalued. Mm -hmm. And boy, I'll tell you, I think a lot of professionals think that uh, value investing has died, and it certainly hasn't performed well over the years. But you know, there's still people that that allocate to it. But to, to answer your to answer your direct question, you know, recession proofing a portfolio. I'm a big believer of cash is king. Um, historically, we would allocate more to bonds, but because bonds are just not paying as much, and you have the interest rate risk if bond yields do rise. Although that doesn't seem to be the case in the near term that bond yeah. yields are going to rise, but just for the the sake of interest rate risk, uh, I, I would prefer to hold an allocation to to cash to yeah. recession proof a portfolio because although it's a non earning asset, at least it preserves capital in a rising or lower rate environment. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. I I'm not a big fan of trying to do these portfolio tilts toward you know uh, inferior uh, sellers or inferior stocks just because I think that. Um, now is that costly? You have a other mechanism, just holding more cash. Um, but it's cheaper in terms of administration, and cheaper in terms of just planning through that um, as well. I think sometimes you know financial advisors are trying to pretend like they're adding value on the investment side, and the real value they're bringing is really still on the planning side, not not right. trying to do super creative things on the investment side. So you know, finally, our, our, I mean. Is, is certainly, people are thinking about making changes to their uh, portfolio. And like you said, <laughs> day trading has come back. It often happens during high volatility times. That's unfortunate. Um, but of course, we also know that the tax system is very different, treats short term holdings very different than the long term holdings. Uh, but at the same time, if you know if you did have a big shock, either up or down, you would want to do some portfolio reallocation just to make sure that you are, you know, properly balanced against your goals. Um, and so, you know, during normal times, some advisors are like, hey, we want to rebalance once a year because we don't want to trigger short-term, you know, uh, tax treatment. But and if the shock is big enough, then we will rebalance. I mean, how do you guys approach that? So we, I, I want to circle back to one thing you mentioned earlier about the cash and I'll, and I'll comment about the rebalancing because sure. on the cash part, when we do, allocate more to cash because we feel that's a more defensive measure for a, a, a pre-recessionary period. Uh, yeah. That's that we're actually not benefiting any way from that because we don't bill right. on cash. So oh, if a client has 20% of their portfolio in cash, they're not, they're paying 20% less because we're not billing on that. And we're doing it because that's the best thing for the client, not yeah. because it's the best thing for us, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, I, here's what I would say, you know, and not to interrupt you. I actually think you should. <laughs> I mean, personally, I actually <laughs> think, you know, because I think it removes, you know, I think if all advisors made the same amount of money, regardless of the investments, it just kind of removes the bias, you know, and it sounds like you guys don't have to worry about it yourself, you know, disciplined that way and always 
taking that fiduciary responsibility always very seriously. But personally, I, I kind of like the idea of advisors, again, just showing that they're adding value on the planning side, not the investment side, and they're just going to charge the same amount regardless of the, in the investment. So I think it's to your credit, they're going one step further and, and uh, doing, not charging cash, but honestly, I, I think you know it would be perfectly legit if you did. Maybe we'll we'll think about that and circle back to it. So, but I do want to answer your your question about the um, uh, just about the I think it was stock trading and volatility sure. in general. So we are, as you know, Kent, we're also a CPA firm, so we do taxes for our clients. Yeah. And some of our clients have you know trading accounts on their own that we don't manage, and I'm trying to see what the numbers are going to look like for these individuals come. 2020 once 2020 ends and they get their 1099s because yeah. what we what we've seen historically is that when people do the day trading they don't think about the short term and long term gains as you mentioned earlier that's right but they don't they don't also think about the tax loss harvesting so yeah. what ends up happening is these individuals do what's called a disallowed loss they'll sell something and then they'll buy it back again within a 31 day period yeah. and now that loss that they could have had an offset against future gains they no longer have it. So I'm, I'm curious to see what happens in 2020 because a lot of people are trading and whether or not there are gonna be a lot of disallowed losses. Yeah, I mean, there's, as you know, I mean, the IRS uses the word substantial multiple times in the tax code and never defines it. And right. it's, you know, the so-called, almost like the Supreme Court, what is pornography? We know it when we see it. And there's been big debates like, if you're holding an S&P 500 ETF by Vanguard and you go to an ETF by uh, S&P 500, that's technically constructed a little bit different because these ETFs are actually patented in the way they're constructed. But it's you know it's, it's created by BlackRock. Is that a substantially different you know investment or not? Or can you daisy chain these things along? So I certainly know some people are trying to do that, but it's not clear what the actual law is in that with those cases. But you're absolutely right. A lot of people are just day trading. They're in and out, in and out, and they're not understanding the wash sale rule, which is it requires you to be out for 30 days before you can offset those losses. So that's that's you know it's a double whammy when you think. I mean, you got these gains. They're going to be hitting with short-term treatment, and you think, well, wait a minute. All that matters is kind of the net change over you know the year and it's like nope <laughs> we're gonna keep on hitting you at every single gain um forget about those those losses because you can't offset them um, with under the wash sale rules unless you're you know really clever in how how you construct this you know a substantially similar portfolio that's not substantially similar in the in in the eyes of the irs so very good right. point there uh all right and, that's oh, go ahead last oh, point oh, uh, I was just going to say about the substantially similar asset, and one could yeah. potentially argue if you've got two S&P 500 funds, if you were to dig deeper and find out one is full replication versus one is maybe uh, yes. a sampling method, which is how they uh, construct the index, maybe you can make that argument or one's market weighted, one's um, equal weighted. Oh, yeah. So the market versus equal, and I'm not a fan of equal weighted. I thought that was a 
big sales job and how that got promoted. But nonetheless, because we know market cap weighted is kind of the way economic theory says is the most efficient way. But nonetheless, um, putting that issue aside, I, I think the IRS would recognize my guess, not to give out tax advice on radio, but my guess that they would certainly recognize those as substantially different. But you're absolutely right. You know, some of the S&P 500 funds, for example, the federal government's thrift savings plan, that is really using a fund that is doing um, a sampling, uh, highly correlated you know, with S&P 500, but secondly, a sampling rather than full replication. And so we'll, it'll be kind of curious to see where a lot of that law evolves. If IRS is any, any tradition, that it will <laughs> still not define and this will get settled in tax court case by case. So, Ara, fantastic right. job. Thanks so much for joining me again on this show. Thank you so much for having me again, Kent. It was a pleasure. And you can find out uh, more about Ara. He's certainly on my website, kentonmoney.com, but you can also go directly to his website, which is acapam.com. That's A-C-A-P as in Paul, A-M as in Mary.com. Again, acapam. Uh, For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 